Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Reading today comes from Matthew 13, 44 through 46, and Colossians 3, 3, 12 through 17. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy went and sold all he had and brought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of, the, one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And all over these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Singing to God with, grat- singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. of you and a bunch of you I don't know and then there's a couple of guys here that work with me that the fact that they've let me get up here shows you like the grace and forgiveness in their hearts they work with me and they've seen me at my worst um Tucker saw me at least two days ago cuss a blue streak uh in a hot attic so um he is here to testify that I am just you know one beggar showing other beggars where he found some bread um so um, also, I've got the stationary mic. I'm not a pacer, but I'm loud enough that if I get too excited, it'll be okay. Um, so I think I'm up here because a couple of weeks ago we were talking about discipleship, and uh, I was sitting in a room with Tim and a couple other guys, and this is going to shock some of you that know me. Um, I kind of pulled my soapbox out and got on it. And uh, about five minutes later, I took a deep breath. And uh, so I was getting excited about this idea of discipleship. And Tim said, well, you know, I was telling a friend, Tim said, well, then why don't you just preach that July 30th? And he said, wait a minute. He said, did he say it like that? Or did he say, well, fine, why don't you teach that July 30th? (laughs) So we'll find out in a few minutes uh, which of those is true. So I did text him and I said, like, you know, what are we trying to do this morning? And he said, 
I just want you to give your perspective on this core value. And I want you to just give your perspective on why it's so valuable and how do we do it. So our core value this morning is walk, live with one another in truth and love. And so I want to break that into three parts this morning. I want to talk about what does it mean to walk? Why did we choose the word walk? What does that mean to us? Second, we want to talk about what we mean by walking. Why is it so valuable? That would be the living with one another part. And then how do we do it? If it's so valuable and it means something to us and it's a core value, how are we going to do this together? And that's going to be the in truth and love part. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to talk about walking, living together, live, excuse me, live with one another, and in truth and love. So first, if we think about the word walk, walk carries some connotations to it. And so the first one would be that if I'm walking, I might be walking with someone. They're walking with me. We're going somewhere. We have a common purpose, a common place. We might just be walking to catch up. Grace walks with a lot of friends just to talk and catch up, and they're, they're moving. And um, I might be walking to, uh, to a game with a friend. You know, we're walking somewhere. But it carries deeper connotations in that we're, when we're walking, it, it implies a purpose. And so when we see this word used, we see it used like a community. Um, people who have a common sense of where they're going. So as we're thinking about community this yeah, uh, walking this morning, one aspect of it is going to be community. So the word that you see all through the New Testament for the church is ecclesia. And that word didn't mean like the Christian church. It meant a group of people gathered for a common purpose. But the way it's used in the New Testament means that we have a group of people who are gathering for a common purpose, and that common purpose is Jesus and his church and his kingdom. So they're gathering for that reason. So when we think of community, we think of, we didn't come to church this morning. We are church this morning, right? We didn't, so when I was in China, I was in Shanghai, and there's a square, and there's this amazing museum. I read all about it. This is pre-Google Maps, so bear with me. I couldn't walk straight to it on my blue dot. I had to actually ask for directions. So I'm standing there in the square, and the, the information said, it's in an old church. So I'm looking around and I'm not seeing an old church and I happen to see someone Chinese speaking English around me and I said, can you tell me where the old church is? And they looked at me kind of funny and it dawned on me, in China, there's a really strong possibility that if they know of the church, the church they're envisioning is 20 people in somebody's house or it's 10 people in a warehouse or they're they may not be meeting in what we think of as a European cathedral with a steeple. They might be meeting in a gym. Imagine that. Right? So we didn't come to church. We are the church. So that's the first aspect of walking. When we walk together, we are the church. My favorite team, no offense, Jeremy, uh, the Liverpool, before every game, they sing, you'll never walk alone. All right, it's amazing, go Google it. It's well worth your five minutes, trust me. Um, and then if you wanna come watch games with me, let me know afterwards. So, but the point of it is, is not, it's not some like rah-rah anthem, like we're gonna go out and crush everyone. 
What makes it so special is it's all like, no matter what's going on, no matter what storms life brings, we're walking together. You'll never walk alone. And it's become like an anthem for the whole city. It's their identity is that this is who we are. You never walk alone. We always walk together. So when, as, as we think about walking, we're first thinking about community. Second, we could be walking following someone. I could be walking like, hey, how do I get there? We're going this way. I'm following you to this place. So there's that initial connotation, and then if we go deeper, what we know is like if you are a disciple, the actual thing that you would be doing, you'd be walking with your teacher, walking with the rabbi. There was a phrase to be, uh, walk in his dust. And the idea was that as this rabbi walked and, he, and the dust kicked up off his sandals, you were walking so closely to him that the dust was getting on your clothing or on your feet. You were actually carrying the dust of the teacher because you were so close to him. I love watching kids walk into church and the more you see them holding their, holding their parents' hand and like their bodies everywhere, but the hands there, they're walking. And you realize like, you just, you begin to see even there, like we're guiding, we're leading. There's this process that goes on, this discipling. Um, you know, in my trade, I was joking about Tucker being with me, you would be an apprentice. It's one thing like, you can take all the books, you can study them, you can read them, you can look at them, but until you've actually gone out and put your hands on the stuff, you don't know what you're doing. And so part of the problem that we have is sometimes we begin to imagine that discipleship is just me giving you this information. Like, I'm just gonna teach you this, I'm gonna hand you this book, go read this book, come back, and that's, but such a huge part of discipleship is walking with someone through life and seeing them drop a water heater and curse like a crazy sailor and then and then get over it and realize like hey you know what this is life these these are real things but until so you know if tucker and i are working until he puts his hands on something he only knows how to do it up here it hadn't gotten in here right and so that's what we're talking about we're talking about there's community and then there's discipleship so that's why we're using this word walk. We wanna have both of those images in our head, that we come together and we walk together, and then within this congregation, this horizontalness, vertically, we're looking for someone who's been where we wanna go, who knows how to do the thing we wanna do. If you, if you have a hobby or something, you, know, you might find someone that can teach you, uh, you know, whatever musical instrument you wanna learn, or you know, whatever sports skill, you've got a coach that's guiding you through this process. This is what we're doing spiritually. We come together and then we seek people who've been where we want to go. Show me how to get there. I watch this worship team some mornings and, it, and I'm so jealous because I want to connect what I know in my head and what I hear them singing. I want to connect it to my hands and feet. I'm learning. It's a long process for me. But it changes you, right? You come in here every morning and you see like, oh wait, you know, like we're going to church. Like we're here, we're, this is worship. I'm learning. So the bigger question though is, is that if we're doing this community and discipleship thing together, if we're an ecclesia, if we're a gathering of people for a common purpose, what are we walking to? Where are we going together? So that's where these, uh, 
the first two parables that we read a minute ago. This is where this comes in. So if you look at these two parables, you're going to see we got two different people. One guy is in a field and he stumbles on this treasure and he's so excited that he does what all of us would do, buries the treasure and then goes out and sells everything so that he can buy it. And then the pearl merchant who's been trained all his life to spot, he knows what he's looking for. He walks in, he spots this pearl and he says, this is, this is it. This is the thing I've been searching for my whole life. I was trained to do this, now I've found it. This is the pearl, I've gotta give up everything to get it. So we've got these two people that go, they, they see something, they see a great treasure, they give away everything, you know, sell everything they have in order to get it. So from a historical perspective, the, the idea of burying the treasure, there weren't banks, you couldn't put your money online, you couldn't buy crypto, you couldn't, you know, get whatever investment, you couldn't, you know, your treasure would be with you either on your property or on your person. And in this time, there would be lots of different threats. You would have wars, and they might have to travel off to war, and you know, all kind of things going on. So they might bury that treasure. So there were actually laws at the time that said, if you come on a land that's not owned and you uncover the treasure, the owner of the land gets the treasure if there's no one that can claim it. So this is actually a thing that went on. So this, when you read this, this is not an economic lesson, right? This is not teaching us to be sly and find things and hide them and you go to the, you know, it's not that. It's also not this. This is not a transactional parable. The, I don't want you to hear this and think, oh, the message is, if I give up everything, I get the kingdom. That is true, that is not what's going on here. It's flipped. It's that they encountered something so beautiful it reoriented every part of their life. Money was just one part of it. It reoriented everything. Everything they're doing now is for this. I found what I was looking for. I don't need anything else. I will give up everything in order to get this thing because this is what I want. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. So I want, to, I want you to understand, yes, Jesus lays claim to everything you have, everything. But think about when he encountered people. Only went to, the only person that encountered him that he said, sell everything and follow me was the rich young ruler. Because that was the one thing that was holding him back. He had other people that encountered him. He didn't say go sell everything. He said go back. Live your life and tell people what I've done for you. It doesn't mean that he didn't lay claim to their money. He's saying everything you have is you're a steward of all of these good gifts I've given you. So no matter what, you're using this for the kingdom. Just some people I'm asking you to give up everything, and some I'm asking to use it in their community, in their world, whatever that looks like for you. But what I want you to see is, is that they, they found something beautiful and reacted joyfully, and it reoriented everything about them. Now, you read this, and it feels like, man, I wish that would happen, and the trick is it's already happened to you. You're already doing this. You already have something that you find most beautiful that you are orienting your life around, either consciously or unconsciously. And so what I want to say is, I want you to think about this. What does it mean to be saved? When you think about, I'm saved, I'm, I'm a Christian, I followed Jesus, he saved me from my sins, great. 
That's amazing, that's beautiful. It's scandalous that he would do it. No one in this room has a boring testimony. I don't care if you grew up never knowing who Jesus, never not knowing who Jesus was, your testimony is astounding because honestly we know you and we can't believe Jesus really loves you, right? And if you know me, it's kind of shocking. All right? He didn't just save us from something. He saved us to something. He saved us to... to what's the point if it's just fire insurance? What are we doing? He didn't just take us out of something. You think about when you save somebody and you take them out of something, where do they go? They're going to something, right? So where are we going? What are we saved to? That's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is a treasure. So when I see this treasure and I realize, wow, I didn't just get saved from this life that I was living. I didn't get saved from my brokenness and saved from my sin and all that. He saved me from that. But not only that, he's taken me to his kingdom. I'm now a part of his kingdom. I have a new name. I have a new inheritance. I have a new everything. I have all these things now that I never had, and I can lay claim to those. How does that happen? What does that mean? So here, I just take a walk with me. Think about Jesus' miracles. Jesus' miracles weren't extraordinary things happening in ordinary circumstances. In the kingdom of heaven, those are ordinary things happening in an extraordinary circumstance. Jesus comes down and he brings the kingdom of heaven to earth where he goes all of a sudden we see the presence of God and what it would be like if he if he brought his kingdom fully to the earth he turns water into wine he's a god of celebration this isn't some boring sitting on a puffy white cloud playing your harp in your white robe this is reality it's tangible it's real he's bringing us into a kingdom where the water is turned to wine and we celebrate he brings healing. He conquered death. He wept over the tomb because it was unnatural for us to die. And he brings him to life, brings Lazarus to life. He feeds the 5,000. We, we have a God of abundance. Where he goes, there is no want, there is no need, there is no starving, there is no, there, there's no scarcity. There's no, I have to have mine and you can't have yours. There's a fullness of everything that we need. He brings us spiritual freedom and forgiveness. He takes us where we're broken. He meets us in our need when we can't possibly imagine we need him and he meets us there and he, and he rescues us. He calms the sea. He walks on water. He broke down cultural barriers. He spoke to women when he wasn't supposed to. He spoke to Samaritans when he wasn't supposed to. He had no respect for cultural barriers and for all of the tribal instincts that we would hold on to. He knocked them all flat. In Jesus, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, there is only those in Jesus. So let's go a little further. Isaiah 55 says that when he comes, the mountains will sing and the hills will, uh, the trees will clap their hands. Psalm 98 says the rivers will clap their hands, the hills sing for joy. Romans 8:22. all creation groans in a longing for the coming of the king, to be set free from bondage. We're told that if we don't praise him, the rocks will cry out. Isaiah 9 tells us that the government will be on his shoulders. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a prince of peace. He's a mighty king, and his government of justice and righteousness will last forever. 
Isaiah 53 tells us that he's a man of sorrows. He knows your grief. He knows what you're going through. Whatever depths you're at, no matter how lonely you feel, he's been there. He's been that lonely. He sat on the cross and said, where are you, God? Left by his father so that we could know the love. Isaiah 61, he'll bind up the brokenhearted. He'll liberate the captives. He'll comfort those who mourn. Isaiah 42, he'll bring justice. I love these two verses. This is a picture. The flickering wick he will not snuff out, and a bruised reed he will not break. The tenderness of our God. He can come in a tornado and a hurricane. He can come in a gentle whisper. Matthew 11, John the Baptist asked, Lord, we've been waiting. Jesus, we've been waiting. Are you the one? And Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the, have the good news preached to them. We just sang it. Isn't he beautiful? What, could you, what more could you possibly want and hope for? When you look around Memphis, can you imagine the kingdom of heaven coming to Summer Avenue and the... There's, I forget who they told us. Somebody's going on Wednesday nights over to the, to the new building and feeding people at night. Leo, that's unbelievable. That's the kingdom of heaven coming down. The, the, the poor are being fed. The hungry are being fed. What would it be like if people could walk down Summer Avenue at night and not have to look over their shoulder and not have to worry about the siren and not have to worry? Or if you showed up for work and you were treated fairly and you were paid fairly and you were in an environment that encouraged and nurtured your spirit and let you find a, a, not, just a, a, not just a paycheck, but a vocation. What would that be like? That would be the kingdom of heaven. That's how the kingdom of heaven works. It's not just about don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't whatever, you know, like, it, and it, like I grew up Southern Baptist. I know all about sword drills. Um, so it's not just that. It's the fullness, it's, the, it's, it's in our vision statement. We seek the shalom of Summer Avenue in Memphis. And the shalom is God coming down, being present, and taking, giving us abundance, and giving us flourishing, and giving us beauty, and giving us joy. And these, these two guys saw it. They found the treasure. And so when we ask the question, what are we doing? That's what, that's what our community is about. That's what our discipleship is about. There are people in this room who have experienced God in a way that I want to learn. I got a lot of head knowledge, but I watch some of you and I know that you're experiencing God in a way that I haven't yet and I want that. So I will sit underneath, I don't care. I don't care where you're from, I don't care who you are, you know Jesus in a way that I long to and I wanna sit under you and experience that. And then I just watch around this room when I come in on Sunday morning, or I, or my, I would save this for later, but I'm just gonna say it now. My favorite part of church I got two things my favorite part of church. One is when Cara does this. Because I know it, it's about to break loose, right? That's my favorite. Just do this. Come on, that's what I show up for. My second favorite part, my second favorite part is when we clean up. And everybody here is picking up a chair and taking it to that end. And I see little kids and I see parents helping their little kids carry. Because what that is is they're participating in this. We're doing this together. This is a community that doesn't like, we don't hire out somebody doing this stuff, we do it. 
I don't want to lose that. Anyway, that was free. So if you want to, the favorite quote I read this week, if you, if you want to build a ship, teach people to long for the endless immensity of the, of the open sea. If you want people to build a ship, teach them to long for the ocean. We're not here to do anything else. Everything else is secondary to the fact that we worship this king that we have just talked about. That we, we, we long for the kingdom of heaven. And as we begin to experience it, it will flow out of us around us. Hebrews 11, when we see the, the hall of fame of faith of all the Old Testament heroes, and we just see them laid out one after one after one, and then we see in verse 13 where it says they did this, they didn't receive the thing that they were hoping for because that was to come, but they did what they did because they were ho their hope, their desire was for a better, a better country, a heavenly one. That's the hope we carry. That's what unites us. That's what we're walking to do together. That's where we're going, to this heavenly city. We are now citizens of a new kingdom. All right. So if that's who we are, if we're a community of people who long for the kingdom of heaven, we're working towards it, and then we're disciples seeking fellow, fellow travelers who can show us the way, then why... What makes doing this together so valuable? Why don't I just stay at home, shut it down, get all the great Christian books and just sit and read them until I'm so full of uh, everything like I, like I just get it? And that's not wrong. Go home, go study. But why do we come here? Why do we drive past other churches? Why do we drag our, you know what, up on Sunday morning? Why do we have to like pull everything together and we're tired and you're worn out from the work and it's hot and everybody's crabby and whatever's going on and like, why are we here? What makes this so valuable? Well, I hinted at it earlier, it's because we all worship something. We're all being formed by something. There is something in your life you don't even know yet or maybe you do that you find so beautiful that you've oriented your whole life around it. You may be doing it out of, of a sense of beauty or out of a sense of fear or a sense of whatever, but there's something that's shaping you and molding you. And bit by bit, day by day, it's shaping who you are. I think, I, all right, so this is super nerdy, just bear with me. I think of it like spiritual calculus, right? So. If you never had calculus, some of you did and can get up here and explain it much better. This is the only thing I remember about it, is that you would see these crazy curves, right? And you had to figure out the area under the crazy curve and you're like, when will I ever do this in my whole life? Why is this necessary? But what they tell you is you, you have to break it into little pieces and as you break it into pieces and you measure all the little pieces, all of a sudden you get the shape of the whole curve. Well, spiritually, that's what's going on with us. Very rarely is there one event where just like it all comes together and now we're a wholly different. It's generally speaking, you know, you don't have like these, we hear all these stories of these great Christian heroes who did this amazing thing. Most of us aren't like getting thrown in a, t in a, in a den full of lions or being, you know, in China, I wouldn't say this, but like most of us aren't being thrown in jail for our faith 
whatever. But bit by little bit, decision by little decision, action by action, day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, you are being shaped into something, and that's being shaped by the thing that you value most. And we're made to worship corporately. Think about when, when Moses was taking the, the Israelites out of, the, the, out of Egypt. What did he say to Pharaoh? He didn't say, let my people go free. He said, let my people go so that they can worship me. That's true freedom. Their truest freedom was worship. So we're all made to worship, and we all have something that we're worshiping, something that's shaping us. It might be your favorite team. It might be your hobby. It might be a person that you're crazy about. You know, I don't want to step on toes here because I promise you I've done stupid stuff about sports things. It might be like Taylor Swift. I don't know. She's generated like $4.6 billion on her tour. Um, I'm just playing. It's, uh, it might be your family. It might be your work. It might be fitness. It might, there's all kind of things that we can unconsciously allow to shape and make us be, you know, that they're just our measuring stick. So we have all these rituals and practices and things that happen in our daily lives that are shaping us day after day after day after day. How we get up in the morning and go to work, how we come home in the afternoon, what we do on our Saturday morning. There's all these rituals, right? So if we think of these rituals in a church language, we would call that liturgy. And liturgy just means it's a fancy word for the work for the people. So liturgy, if we think, if you go to like high church and they talk about this stuff a lot, it's going to be... Uh, the liturgical calendar, and we talk about Advent, and we talk about um, Lent, and we talk about Easter and Christmas and Ascension Day, and there's, and if you look at the Old Testament, there was a liturgical calendar of days of celebrations and remembrances and things that were meant to shape the people at the at the time of planting and the time of harvest, and there were all, you know the time that they would be cleansed from all their sin. It was these were all things that were meant to shape them. So I want you to realize that there are spiritual liturgies that we follow. We come here on Sunday morning, we sing worship songs. Have you ever thought about what goes on when we do that? Like, why does it shape you? It's stirring your heart. Music does that to us, but also we're in a place we're singing to someone we cannot see. We, we sing along with each other. We, our bodies move. There's all these things that are going on in us that are sh that process shapes us, that week to week. There's a reason when you sing an old hymn or Tim thinks of something, and he busts into a, a hymn that pops in his brain out of nowhere, it's because he's been liturgized, he's been shaped by singing that song year after year after year, and now it's become part of who he is. But there's also other liturgies that are going on in our lives. There are political liturgies, there's economic liturgies, there's social liturgies, there's cultural liturgies. There's all these other things that are shaping us. If you, if you read a lot in... Uh, you listen to a lot of pastors, one thing they'll tell you is, I get my people for like two hours a week and I can't compete with 20 hours of news cycle every night. Because the news cycle is liturgizing us to tell us what we should care about, what's important, who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, who do I hate, who do I like? So we use phrases, we know this, because we use phrases like second nature. We use phrases like home training. Anybody know home training? What do those words mean? They just mean that we've, we've had rituals and practices within our home 
or within in this thing that I'm learning to do, and now it's second nature. We don't think about writing thank you notes in our house. You just write them, right? So an example would be driving a car. Anybody here taught a kid to drive a car? God bless you. Can we take a minute to pray? So what you know is your kid starts off 10 and 2, right? 10 to, like up in that seat, heads on a swivel, radio's off, phone's turned down. Oh my gosh, okay. You know, and you're like, you know, and, and if you're like me, you're over here like, dad's seatbelt, there's no brake on the passenger side. But I'm liturgizing my child by driving. All right, where are you looking? Are you looking to your left? Did you look to your right? Did you do this? Did you hit the gas? You're braking too soon. We need some more distance. Do you know where we're going? Stop looking at your phone. But, right? So we're, we're liturgizing our child in the art of driving. But what we all know is that eventually it becomes second nature. My kid, like two years later, they're like 50 miles an hour in the 40, you know, listening to music and singing, and I'm in the passenger seat like... She's probably going to listen to this and like, I'm going to get in so much trouble. Um, but there's other liturgies of, that we talked about a second ago, of social media, of, of the way we consume entertainment. The way, I mean, like all these things are shaping us. And so the point being is that we've just talked about this vision of the good life, of the vision of what we're supposed to be doing, which is the kingdom of heaven. And yet... There's all these competing visions that we're out there facing in the world every day. So we can't hole up in our little spiritual shell and never encounter those things because we're to be salt and light. So we've got to go out there and we take the power of this thing that we have and we move out. But if we're not careful, our hearts are hard and we're like sheep and we nibble here and nibble there and you look up and we're all the way over where we're not supposed to be. And that's why we need each other. I need you to liturgize me and you need me to liturgize you, we need to come together and be able, not just on Sunday morning, I love what Tim said about worship the other day. We think of worship as like what we're doing right here singing, but worship is any, yes, any obedient Christ exalting action, which doesn't mean Sunday morning, that means throughout the week. And so I'm taking these things, I come in here and I get recalibrated. This morning recalibrates me. Grace will tell you we've had some stuff go on and I told her within the last two hours, I feel hopeless. It's not the place I wanted to be in standing here. And yet I read this and I'm not hopeless. I'm recalibrated, I'm now ready. This process does something to me that gives me the strength to go into the next day, to hope for that heavenly city. Uh, in the words of the prophet Adele, I, I didn't have time to choose the things I chose to do. You love that song? It's so good. Um, but I can't do like Tim. I can't sing it for you, so sorry. I started singing it to, to my daughter last night, and she's like, Dad, please don't do that when you're up there. Hallelujah. The point being, what she's saying was, I was young and I was dumb and I was moving so fast that I never took time to choose the things that I wound up doing. I just chose to do. 
And so what I'm asking you this morning is, is that I'm saying we have to choose the things that are shaping us. We have got to choose them or they will choose themselves for us. You're either gonna have Jesus and his people shape you or you're gonna have the world and your culture shape you. So how are we gonna do this? Colossians 3, 12 through 17, there's about 50 places I could have gone to do this. Look what it says. Put on then. Put on then. I gotta be honest with you, there's a lot of sweating over what I was gonna wear up here this morning. I, I, appreciate, I appreciate Tim talking about like we're gonna worship like good country white people because I felt seen. And, uh, When we think about putting on, it says put on new clothes, right? Put on. So what he's saying is, is that we're becoming something new. Those old things you had on, these old characteristics, these old virtues, these old ways of living, you're taking those off and you're putting something new on. Well, how do we do that? We're breaking old habits and making new ones. We don't do that in isolation. None of these things that he lists out here are things that we go home and do by ourselves. I can't be forgiving by myself. I mean, I can forgive myself, and that's like a whole counseling thing, and that, that's not what we're talking about this morning. But I can't forgive you unless we're, in, unless we're around each other, right? Unless we're living in truth and love. Why would I need to forgive you unless we're living around each other and we're both trying to be honest with each other and we're not being nostalgic? We're not pretending these were the good old days. Good old days for who? You ever wonder that? Like whose good old days were, you know, Bluebell Ice, they've changed their motto, by the way, pay attention. They no longer say the good old days, which is, which is really wise because whose good old days back when you were making ice cream 30 years ago? All right, that's a, that's a side point. So, I, I'm like so close to going down the rabbit hole. Um, all right, come back. We've got to take on new habits and new natures and new virtues, and we have to do this together until they come to the point that they become second nature, that they become home training. That's what we're doing here, right? But that doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. This isn't enough. We've got to be around each other. We've got to be connecting. We need to be here for other things. Part of that will be informational learning. You can't celebrate the Bible and know that it says all this stuff unless you spend time in it. But you can't just spend time in it as an intellectual exercise because your heart needs the experience. So I think of it as, I've been laughing with Grace because we've had so much go on in the last 15 years. I told her like I felt the first 40 years were like the class portion of our lives and the last 15 have been like the lab portion of our lives. And God's like, okay, just mix these things up and try not to explode anything, right? And, but we're practicing these things that we've been taught and we're having to learn how to love and how to create space for people to struggle and to love them in the struggle and then to have people love us in our struggle and like, but that's what it looks like when we're doing this together. So what does that mean? What does it mean to put on all these things? Well, you may not have noticed, I'm gonna break it to you gently, I'm a little older than some of you. And I know that these good looks and my youthful exuberance have kind of clouded the fact that 
I actually was a member of a church for longer than at least half of you were alive. So, um, which is just wildly encouraging for me. Um, but I'm here to, what I want to do is I want to testify that doing this is worth it. It's worth it. Yesterday afternoon, my good friends flying to Kazakhstan, right? To go be a missionary. We've been here for 12 years. And I can't tell you when we went from being friends to being best friends. I don't know when that happened. But I know that over time, he changed who I am. And you know how that happened? We were in the same Sunday school class for 12 years. So, 40, he traveled a ton. We think he's a secret like CIA agent, not a missions pastor, but, um, but like 40 Sundays a year, I see him for a few minutes. And then like once or twice a month in a meeting, and then we'd have lunch every couple of weeks. And then I went on a couple of trips with him. And then I finally went hiking with him. And like over time, he went from being this guy I know and this guide to now he's like shaping who I am. Because I'd sit and talk to him and I come in and like, if you know me, like I'm jumping in with both feet. I don't care how deep the water is. We're just like, here we go. And he's sitting there like patiently considering and like, I asked him after a year at, at church, at, at, he'd been at church, he's like, so what do we need to change? Like, what, what have we got to do? Like, come on, man, I want some answers. Let's, let's just go. And he's like, I've only been here a year. I really feel like I need to like watch and learn and listen. Like his patience was amazing. It's such a long view of what he was doing. So I'm learning from that. He shaped me to be a more spiritually patient person. But it wasn't just that. He made me adventurous. You know, like, he would go places and put himself in situations that were crazy. He had me standing in front of like a bunch of Kazakh people teaching like God. I, I'm not making this up. I went to China and I'm standing in front of a group of Chinese people talking about suffering and dude comes up to me before I get ready to talk and goes, yeah, I was really disappointed. I was imprisoned last week and I only led three people to Christ. And I was like, oh, well, I'm definitely the guy that needs to teach about suffering today. Thank you. He was so consistent. He was just there for everything, everything. And, and Tim knows, I mean, he's like a mentor to Tim too. He was part of how this church came to be. He's got a long vision for spreading the kingdom of God. And when you get around him, it's infectious. But see, he's not the only one that's like that. Cause I look around this room and like, good grief. You know, I, I'm afraid to do any of this because I don't want to like leave people out. But like, I could sit here and like point and point and point and say, here's a way that you have changed who I am in just the year that we've been here because I watch what you're doing. I, I, I'll, I'll say this, we have a friend who's been coming to our Cultivating Connections class. You wanna talk about unintended consequences. So she's coming to it and one of you is showing up just because you're a teacher and you care about your students and you wanna learn what it means to better teach your students who've had trauma. And she comes to me and she goes, I cannot believe that a young single man would show up for this class when he doesn't have his own children just because he loves his students. What does that do to you when you know that? If that doesn't change you, the witness of, uh, there you are, it's you. Nathan, I just didn't see you. I, was, I kept looking over here. 
So Nathan's showing up because he wants to love his kids better. Well, now what am I supposed to do? It's like any good team, right? Man, when somebody's setting the standard and he's like in his 1,200-yard sprint and he's still killing it and like busting over the line, I can't jog. All right, so I'm a, I'm, I don't even know how long I've been up here. God help us. I meant to put this, I meant to put this up sooner. Um, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a couple things and then we're going to wrap it up. All right, so C.S. Lewis had a group of friends that he met with all the time. They were his closest inner circle. One of them died, and he said, it's horrible, I'm going to miss him, but, the, but maybe, just maybe, the only silver lining is I can, I'm going to have these new people. Yeah, I'm going to have more experience with these people. But then he got together with them, and he realized there was a part of them that only this guy brought out. And so instead of gaining more of them, he lost something of them because this person wasn't there to bring them out. Without you here, we lose a little bit of who God is because God's doing something in you that he's not doing in anybody else. And if we don't know it, we lose that. So we need each other. We need to learn from each other and we need to know what that looks like. I need each of you here. You need me here. We need to be uncomfortable. So... What can happen over time is my young life leader in high school was a guy named Brad Baker. And Brad was great and he was super sweet and he, and he gave me a place to feel at home when I was in high school and felt like I had nowhere to be that I belonged, right? I will always appreciate him. So then I go to second and all of a sudden his son is in my small group. So he's mentored me, now I'm mentoring his son in our small group. And then my son calls me a few years later and tells me he's going to lunch with Brad's son. So now we got four generations because we just showed up every day. Nothing special. We just showed up and had lunch with somebody and all of a sudden we've got a history, we've got a heritage, we've got a legacy of what God's doing in his church and in his people. So what I'm asking you this morning is to do all the things, right? To go home, have your quiet time, you know, study, do all the head stuff. But I'm also saying that if you, that's all you do, if you don't come here, if you don't meet with people, if you don't meet at, with a small group, if you don't do whatever, like you need each other. We need each other. And I can't tell you after all these years of doing it, what it means to walk in a room and have these faces. There are people who came today just because they knew I was teaching, and, or preaching, excuse me, and, and they're, you know, and we've got years. All right, so here's the final thing, promise. So there's a guy named Gary Hagan that's the International Justice Mission head of the, amazing person. So he tells this story, when he's a little kid, his family goes to Mount Rainier, and they're gonna go climb Mount Rainier, and they go to the visitor center, and the visitor center is awesome. It's just like displays and information and videos and all this cool stuff. And it's a little rainy, and the mountain's a little scary, and they're all decked out right. And so he decides that he's going to let his family climb the mountain while he hangs out in the visitor center. So they come down. He gets bored after a couple hours. He's, you know, like, what am I going to do? You know, he's there all day, and, you know, typical kid. He's, oh, this is, oh God, this is so stupid. 
and they come down and they're scratched up and they're bleeding and they're dirty and they're sweaty and they're smiling from ear to ear. And they're saying, this was the greatest. You should have come with us. Why didn't you come with us? This is amazing. You've got to, like, man, the next time we climb, you like, you've got to go see it. And so my message to you is so obvious. We can all do this, right? Like, you don't get the view without the climb. Please don't stay in the visitor center. Don't stay there. Don't miss it. Get dirty. Get sweaty. Roll your sleeves up. Climb the mountain. Get the view. It is so worth it. So the the reason we do that is, is that when Jesus came to that field, he saw you, he saw the treasure. And he gave everything he had in order to get this treasure. You're that treasure. He did it for you. He bought this kingdom for you. He gave himself for you. So this is what we're doing together. We celebrate a savior who came and gave himself for us so that we could take his name and his inheritance and his kingdom. I'll close with some prayer, thanks.